Welcome to the Voices of Women Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tatiana Resnik, a practicing physician and a certified life coach. You will hear about inspirational journeys and practical tips from amazing women physician experts, as well as effective coaching and steps to working success. Welcome everyone to this episode of Voices of Women Physicians podcast. I'm so happy to have here today with us Dr. Kara Vada. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to connect. Dr. Kara Vada is a board-certified adult and pediatric allergy immunology and lifestyle medicine physician, children's patient, and certified life coach. She is a national expert, sought-after speaker, advisor, and host of the Crunchy Allergies podcast, where she covers all things allergies, autoimmunity, and anti-inflammatory living. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so I am a lifelong Midwesterner, originally from the not-Chicago part of Illinois, and I've lived in Columbus, Ohio for the last 13 years after the match brought my husband and I here. We couples matched together and did my training in internal medicine and pediatrics and then stayed on to do allergy immunology and actually a medical education fellowship. And about two years into my role as an attending physician, I was just back from my maternity leave after having my second daughter. And I was incredibly fatigued. I hurt a lot. And I attributed it to being a doctor mom for a very long time, but it was a trip to seeing my dentist. The dental hygienist mentioned that my mouth looked dry and I kind of like tongue in cheek said, well, my eyes have been dry for several years. I am not able to wear contacts anymore and I never wear mascara unless I have to because I look like a raccoon by like midday. I'm like, I should probably get that checked out. And so after thinking on it and with my clinical background, I was worried and suspected perhaps something like Sjogren's was going on. And I made an appointment with my primary care and kind of psyched myself up. I knew my primary care doctor from training and through some education things we did. I knew she was incredibly nice and receptive, but I still just didn't want to be like that patient trying to direct their own care or be like paranoid about what was going on or like a hypochondriac. And I went in and said, Hey, I'm worried. Can we run this blood work? And she's like, I'm sure you're fine. But yeah, I guess we can run it. And the blood work ended up being consistent with and concerning with Sjogren's. And so subsequent lab work confirmed that. And in its initial story, it seems relatively straightforward. But now in hindsight, learning what I've learned from the Sjogren's patient community, I actually had symptoms that now I would recognize as of a prodrome or maybe early signs dating back to even college, like 10 years prior to when I was diagnosed. And it was a really rude awakening and really opened my eyes to a condition that I knew well enough to get the board's question right. But I didn't know what to look for, or what to listen to from possible patients. And the data would really say that that's overwhelmingly the case. It's estimated that there are upwards of 70% or so of suspected Sjogren's patients out there are not yet diagnosed. And 90% of those who are affected are women. And the lab work that we have to memorize for our internal medicine boards or for the pediatric boards, you have to know it because the SSA antibody can cause heart block and 
and little babies. So that's part of the PEDS board. So you kind of remember that, but that's only positive in about 60% of patients. So that leaves a good portion of patients who are seronegative or blood marker negative. And so those next steps are when to think and when to push for that evaluation and that workup really don't ever get discussed. And increasingly, I'm realizing it doesn't necessarily get discussed all that much. It sounds like within rheumatology as well. I see. So good to hear about chagrins and it's difficult. I wanted to ask, how does a diagnose if serum negative? It's mostly based on symptoms or something else? Yeah, so there are some diagnostic criteria that are available. Primarily what they do is they seek to look to confirm the symptoms of dryness and tissue damage. So evaluation of the tears. So measuring how much tear you're making or looking for signs of dry eye. And then when looking for oral dryness and oral inflammation, oftentimes a lip biopsy is able to be performed. At some specialized centers, they are able to do ultrasounds now of the salivary and parotid glands to look for signs of inflammation. Unfortunately, that's not available where I practice. Even though I am at a large academic medical center, it's really not available aside from very specialized centers. And then there is discussion and I think some debate amongst the role of clinical diagnosis. Diagnosis. Those who are seronegative a lot of times will suffer sometimes primarily from more fatigue and some of the symptoms of dysautonomia. So things like POTS and other nerve related symptoms that we've seen, I think, greater awareness with long COVID, but that is another symptom category that isn't discussed as often in medical circles, but it's discussed all the time in the patient communities. I see. It is very important to raise awareness in as a physicians to know and to be able to recognize and to help. What as a physicians need to know about children's misconceptions? Yeah, I think what I imagined a Sjogren's patient coming in to see me complaining about is their dryness, because that's what we learn, right? That's in the question stem when we go to do our studying. And the reality is that patient more likely is going to talk to you about those things that are really impacting their quality of life, which in many cases is the overwhelming fatigue and body pain. They may look and sound a lot like a patient with fibromyalgia or who is mildly depressed because they feel so cruddy and they can't sleep well and they have brain fog. So maybe they're not thinking as clearly, not able to recall words or feel like their focus is off. And they may complain of other symptoms of dysautonomia. So feeling like their heart's racing or they're getting presyncopal or feeling like they're going to pass out with position changes and things that I think when we're in a busy office setting and or our cup is not full and we're not able to like lean in and get a little more curious about what's going on. It's easy to brush that patient off and say, oh, you just need more sleep. You just need to like take a vacation. Some of those aspects, which very well may be the case too, but we first and foremost need to recognize that this very well could be an organic autoimmune condition. I see. What practical strategies can you recommend that save time and money to live a tired life with autoimmune condition? So living with an autoimmune condition can be expensive, both in regards to time and energy and money. There's co-pays and extra therapies. You may be trying to get physical therapy or massage therapy, things to help with pain and maybe seeking out complementary alternative treatments as well that aren't always covered by insurance. So increasingly, as a lifelong Midwesterner, one of the things that I think is like core to our being is trying to find a good deal, trying to save money to be relatively frugal. 
when able. And so I love finding strategies to save money and also to feel better, eat healthier. So one of the things that I love to do is to manage my meals by planning ahead. So how I do this is before I go to the store, I shop my own kitchen to see what needs to be used up. I use a template that I've created and I love teaching others how to use this technique, but I created a personalized template for our family that we update from time to time. But for instance, on Tuesdays, we love to do Taco Tuesday. So we'll think about, okay, what are we going to do? Kind of gives me a framework to work within and to come up with some ideas, but I'll go through the kitchen, shop what we have that's really minimized our food waste. The other aspect is eating a more plant-focused diet, replacing some of our meat proteins with maybe some legumes like beans or lentils is super cost-effective and really great for our gut health, rich in fiber, rich in protein. As patients with autoimmune diseases, we're at increased risk of heart disease. So anything we can do to eat a more heart-healthy diet is really important as well. And then some of the other things that I love is myth-busting. So there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions that we all should be taking a whole bunch of supplements or certain vitamins. And certainly there is some evidence maybe for some vitamin D or some fish oil or omega-3 supplements, maybe turmeric. But aside from that, a lot of it's a lot of hype and a lot of marketing without a lot of science to back it up. So I'm always up for trying to, I call it kind of weed through the woo. I like gardening. And so kind of like thinking about going through and really seeing, okay, what is going to be effective? And then also, is it practical and cost efficient too? When we look at the stats, only one in 10 Americans eats the recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables every day. And so we have a lot of work to do collectively on those basics, getting some fruits and vegetables in, eating some other plant-based proteins, making sure we're getting some movement in, optimizing our sleep. That's really where the money's at in regards to business and generally the things that don't necessarily cost much either. Absolutely. Lifestyle medicine interventions are so effective. Absolutely. I'm also board certified in lifestyle medicine and I always call my clients and my patients, it's so important and it's so simple it's like easiest thing to do not expensive at all and it's amazing how powerful those interventions are what common sense approaches to balance rather than boost your immune system would you recommend Yeah. So when we think about things like autoimmunity and allergies, which I take care of in the office all the time, we're talking about the immune system having too much inflammation or overreacting in ways. I jokingly refer to it as the misbehaving immune system, because I imagine the immune system is like a toddler going around and messing things up, throwing the toilet paper everywhere and just making a mess. So often what we'll hear in a lot of marketing is that we need to boost our immune system. And I always just remind people, if you have an autoimmune condition or if you have allergies, the last thing you need to do is actually boost your immune system. We really want to rebalance and really look for that homeostasis. And so that's where I really love promoting lifestyle medicine in particular. The way I frame it is my five must-have habits for daily living. So it's managing our meals, planning ahead for 80 to 90% of our meals. So we're really thinking and using our human brain as opposed to 
falling into those cravings that our lizard brain has when we get hangry. We're like, oh, I want the French fries or I want the ice cream or what have you. Then making sure we're getting daily movement in some mindfulness time, whether it's journaling or spending some time in prayer or meditation. And then meaningful moments with our loved ones. I have three young kids, seven, almost five and 18 months. And so trying to have just even like five minutes of quality time with them on a busy day really can help us tap into that rest and recovery and repair mode in our body. And then last but not least, mandatory me time. So making sure that we're setting aside time on our calendars to really make a date with ourselves in some way and reinforce that we're going to be showing up for ourselves time and time again, because it's really important. I think, especially as a busy mom, a doctor mom, which I'm sure with many of your listeners that it's so important to remember that we can't pour from an empty cup and we can't be the mom we want to be, the partner we want to be, the doctor we want to be, the friend we want to be if we aren't taking care of ourselves first. Oh, it's so important. Absolutely. And I was curious, there is a lot of conversations going on recently about various mushrooms. What do you recommend? Do you say actually food or is it balancing or is it boosting? Yeah, there is some data to suggest they might be helpful. My take with trying herbs or supplements is first and foremost to talk with your healthcare team. Make sure that there isn't any concern for interactions between whatever you're proposing to use and what you're currently on. I think that's the first step. The other thing I like to recommend is that people just hit the pause button and at least follow the money. Like who's recommending it? Are they selling you something? What's their state? in the game. I'm really a big fan of transparency. And it's something we lack so much in medicine from insurance pricing and Lord knows everything else. But just so we go in with eyes wide open. And then if we're going to try something, we feel like it's safe, we think it's a reasonable thing to try cost benefit wise, give it a try and keep some notes, track your symptoms. Do you find it helpful? As I will tell my patients, is the juice worth the squeeze? I'll say the same thing even with immunotherapy or allergy shots. Do you feel like it's helpful? Because the reality reality is not every treatment is going to be helpful for everyone. Even if it is traditionally an effective treatment, it may or may not be for you. And that is my take. Can mushrooms actually cause harm? No, not that I'm aware of, especially not like the medicinal, like reishi, lion's mane. And those from what I've read seem to have some pretty decent benefits. And how about herbal supplement? Also any harm from this or unlikely? So the things that I do recommend folks watch out for when we look at echinacea, there is a little bit of concern with echinacea. I will say I am one that always, I will, I think until I die, promote caution in that our supplement market, there isn't a terrible amount of oversight. There's some monitoring kind of within the system, but the FDA doesn't have a lot of pull in regards to if there's a problem to take things off the shelf. And the reality is, so I, after my diagnosis, really was doubling down thinking, okay, if I do everything right, essentially maybe my Sjogren's will go away. Maybe I'll feel better. It will be like Harry Potter's magic wand and everything will go away. And so I started doing green smoothies and I bought this superfood supplement to add to my green smoothies and to drink in the afternoon. It was very delicious and seemed to be very healthy. But about eight weeks after I started using it, I started having fevers kind of on a daily basis for a couple weeks. At the time, I figured it was just something I 
picked up for my kiddos. They're in daycare. So that would be very common, but I felt incredibly tired. And about a week and a half, two weeks in, I went to the bathroom and noticed my urine had turned really dark and I was getting itchy. And so I looked in the mirror, I looked in my eyes and they looked a little more yellow. And I said a four letter word. And so I'm married to a physician as well. And we had one of those weeks where it was incredibly busy. I didn't have time to make an appointment. I was like, honey, you need to get home. I have to go to the urgent care before they close because I need lab. Like there's something wrong. I think back now and I'm like, how could I not have even like prioritized my health at that point? But the urgent care doc called me back at like 10 o'clock that night and said, your liver enzymes are through the roof. You need to go to the ER. Of course, being me and a doctor patient, I'm texting my girlfriend who's a GI doc and was like, do I really have to go to the ER? Not always the best at following directions, but to make a long story short, I ended up with a liver biopsy. My tissue was read locally by our pathologist and they said, okay, actually we also need to send it to the NIH because it looks a little funky. And what the end conclusion was that it was inflammation that they thought was consistent with a supplement injury. And so the only thing it was on was a superfood supplement. The symptoms improved once I stopped using it. I remained on hydroxychloroquine, which I was on previously. And I try to be upfront with that. We all go through life seeing the world through our own experiences and lenses that are tinted by that. And as much as I would try to be non-biased in my assessment or my thoughts about supplements, I'm always going to have that little bit of a like, this is what could happen. And the reality is I still do. I take like, I have a hair, skin and nail kind of thing I take that has some B vitamins and stuff in it. I have my fish oil, I have my vitamin D and my black vanilla and little something else. So I do still take some things that are not just pharmaceuticals, but I've always been pretty slow and steady, deliberate. I actually just recently found a paper from the mid 1980s saying that N-acetylcysteine actually may be helpful in Sjogren's small study, but it's very low risk. And I thought, oh, okay, we'll give it a try. And I'm not yellow yet. So it's such a scary experience with a supplement. Also, I wanted to ask how physicians can ensure that patients feel heard, seen, and believed during visits, especially when they come with uncommon conditions, with difficult to diagnose conditions. Yeah, that's tricky. It's really hard in our current medical setting especially in certain practice setups. I will fully admit that I'm very fortunate in working in the environment that I'm in, that I have 30 to 60 minute patient visits, depending on why the patient's coming in. So that helps. And that gives me more time to be able to lean in and get curious and listen. I think one of the things that I tell my colleagues and I tell trainees that come and rotate with me is it can be really therapeutic for patients just to feel heard. If we can give them that 90 seconds to just get their story out and not interrupt them. I know we learned that as med students, like from the get go, but we stopped doing that pretty quickly. So if you can let them share their story, a lot of times you'll get the history and you'll get the diagnosis from them sharing that story with you. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I think is really helpful is even if we don't know what's 
going on, it's okay to share that with the patient to say, Hey, I can't necessarily explain what's going on with you and your physiology. I'm not sure exactly what is causing your symptoms, but I hear, and I see that this is what you're experiencing. And I hear that this is how it's affecting you. And I would like to do what I can to help you figure that out. And whether that means connecting someone with a colleague or whatever that may be that you're able to at least help them on a lot of times we call it the diagnostic odyssey, because many of these patients will see dozens of physicians over years seeking a diagnosis. And the other thing that will tend to occur if they have a tense or adversarial type visit with a physician or other healthcare professional, those events are traumatic. And so then many times those patients will avoid the healthcare system for a period of time, sometimes even years before they come back looking again for an answer starting over. And so it can really delay diagnosis and treatment too when patients feel like they're being harmed by the system that is supposed to be healing and helping them. Yes, it is very important to actually be able to help and to help somatists to feel sure that you will do your best to help them. Yeah. I think the other thing that's been incredibly helpful, and I'm still learning, but I enrolled this past year in a CME program to become more trauma-informed and learn how to mitigate trauma or to lessen the potential of me inflicting trauma on patients. And what I've learned, our language and our words matter, but also there is something to be said. Impact is the most important, but intent is important too. So if we can go in, lean in, assume the best from our patients, realize that that patient isn't coming there to be annoying or to make your day difficult. They're coming there because they're suffering and they want answers. And sometimes it's really hard for us to remember that if we are burnt out or we're hurting in some way, but trying to come back to that place, taking just a deep breath before you go in to see that patient that you know is going to be emotionally or educationally intense, that you're going to have to do a lot of thinking, a lot of empathy to care for that patient. Just taking a moment of mindfulness before going in can be really helpful too. I see. What else helps from the point of being trauma-informed to be able to be most helpful for those patients? I think one of the big things is listening with curiosity, watching their body language too. Are you seeing them freeze up or go into that fight or flight, watching out for some of those signs of symptoms? I think also that's where providing that validation that you are listening, you are hearing, and also going in, not assuming that they're going to trust you off the bat. You have to earn that trust from those patients. If someone's been wronged by the system, they're not going to be falling all over. Like my mom used to talk about the show Marcus Welby was one of her favorites growing up where the doctor was the superhero, but they may not have a great opinion about the medical system. So I think as much as you can at least try to show up. And then the other thing that I find really helpful is confirming the plan with the patient and then following through on your word. That's an another way that we can be not only trauma-informed, but mitigate trauma by following through on things. And that helps build trust as well. So whether it's a phone call from the office or my chart message, that follow-up can be really helpful. Oh, yes, this is very important. Absolutely. What else would you like to recommend to physicians? What to avoid, what to do, what not to do? 
So I think one of the things I would love to share is that hurt people hurt people. Just as we were talking about earlier from the personal standpoint of mandatory me time, we really need to take care of ourselves as healers in order to function the best we can for our patients as well. And I hear often like, oh, I can't take time off. I can't do that. My patients need me, so on and so forth. But the reality is if you don't take care of yourself, you may not be there tomorrow for your patients. Or I know around the time I was diagnosed, I was incredibly burned out personally and professionally. And I know I was not leaning in. I wasn't getting curious. I wasn't rethinking things that were challenging. Like I just wanted it to go away. Like everything seemed like every little click was such a burden. And so if you find yourself in that place, take care of yourself, ask for help, take a little time off, do what you need to do because really in the end, it's not only so much of a benefit to yourself personally, but also to those patients that you're caring for as well. Absolutely. It is very important. And how can our listeners connect with you if they would like to hear more? Uh, so I am active on social media at Crunchy Allergist. I also have a podcast, which we just rebranded called the Becoming Immune Confident Podcast. And we talk about, as you mentioned, all things allergies, autoimmunity, anti-inflammatory living. And I have a website, drkarawada.com, K-A-R-A-W-A-D-A, where I have information. I do a lot of speaking. I do coaching and have some courses I run with a dietitian that I've heard with. So I love doing a little bit of all the things. It is wonderful. I will add all of those to the show notes for our listeners to connect with you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful, please subscribe, leave a five-star review and share it with a friend. Have any topics you'd like covered? Send me an email at joyfulsuccessliving at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram to connect at Joyful Success Living. Have an amazing week. See you next time. The Voices of Women Physicians podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not provide any medical, financial, tax, legal or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own well-being, decisions, and results. Dr. Resnick is a practicing physician, but Voices of Women Physicians podcast is not reflective of the opinion of her employer. You should always contact professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.